All right. Stories of old, a journey through the Old Testament. Um, so we're picking back up in our sermon series uh, that we've been in for a little bit now. Uh, last week we took a break to hear about my sabbatical, but I think Celia was in this for like two weeks prior. Is that right? Um, yeah, so uh, this, is, uh, this is what's going to be guiding us through the fall. Uh, we're using a resource that's called the Narrative Lectionary. Um, we talked about this last year, but I understand if that just kind of went in one ear and out the other. Uh, what the Narrative Lectionary is is a, a scheduled list of readings uh, that help us understand the, the story or the narrative of Scripture, um, because that's one of the best ways to understand what's happening in the Bible is to understand this big arching narrative that's taking place from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so uh, this is a, a, a four-year cycle of readings that help us hit all of the high points of Scripture to like fill in the dots of like or connect the dots of like what's happening within this story. So for the fall, we're going to be journeying through the Old Testament. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know it's quite a ride. So um, brace yourself as we, uh, get ready, or as we continue on in that. Uh, but as we get ready to jump into this morning, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we are grateful for uh, this morning and this uh, chance to be together. We're grateful for the gift of this community. And uh, now as we turn our attention to the scriptures and open them and wrestle with them together, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us, and we ask that your spirit would uh, lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into your image. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Prior to having children, I had always thought of birth as being... um, uh, terribly strange and utterly disgusting. Um, but then uh, Allie got pregnant with Pax, and all of that began to change for me. Uh, because when Allie got pregnant, uh, she like got all into all things uh, birth and pregnancy, which meant that I, as a good husband, uh, found myself getting caught up in all things birth and pregnancy. And I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, because at first I was like kind of rolling my eyes, but then like I found it to be really, really fascinating. I began to learn about all sorts of new things. I learned this fancy word called a doula, which I thought was part of your brain, but that's not actually what it is. It's like a support person. Uh, I learned about that. I learned about all these other things. And I quickly found myself having conversations with other guys about pregnancy, and I thought something might be strange here. Um, but because, like, Allie got really into it, like, as we were thinking about Pax's birth, like, she put a lot of thought and intentionality and care uh, and research into like what that would look like. So we fast forward to his birth, and things happened outside of our control, and uh, ended in an emergency C-section. And uh, he was happy and healthy. Mama was happy and healthy, and we sat with that tension of like, what does it mean to, for everybody? But he'd be happy and healthy, but this not be the plan that we had in mind, right? And so fast forward two years, and now Allie's pregnant with Rhea, and again, like that same sort of in- intentionality, that same sort of thought, that same sort of care of like what this, this pregnancy, what this birth will look like, maybe even more so to like shore up any of those, those risks that we had from the last time. And then we get to uh, the morning of April 4th. And uh, I'm awoken at like three or four in the morning. And I wish like at this monumental moment in our child's life, I could tell you what I said. But I think it was something like, huh, 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 labor, huh? Uh, fortunately, Allie had more wits to her than I did. And we, <laughs> she woke me up and we got downstairs and called the doctor who surprisingly didn't sound any more coherent than I did, which was not super reassuring. Um, 
But then we waited it out, and then we began this 30-minute drive to Altman Orville. Now, Allie had, again, done all of this research, and so one of the things that she wanted on this drive was like this meditative mindfulness, like pregnancy, birth podcast. And as we're driving, like, I'm driving, so I'm trying not to get too into it, but I, I'm like trying to keep myself from laughing because the, the person who's doing this sounds exactly like Betty White. And like, it's a really hard thing to imagine Betty White like talking to somebody in labor, right? And so, I'm, yeah, it was, a, it was a whole thing. But, so we get to the hospital, I'll fast forward through all of those details for you, except to say, there comes this moment right before Ray is actually born where uh, I like look up and I, I'm paying attention to what's happening here. And I see standing next to me our, our doula, again, like the supportive encouragement coach sort of person who's been there with us this whole time. And then I see two nurses, and again, they've been there with us the whole time, encouraging Allie, um, kind of telling us how to, how to go about this. And then at the very last minute, the, the doctor walks in, who's like this really calm, gracious, gentle man who just speaks like this in the midst of a very tense moment. And then Ray is born. She, she comes out of like the darkness of the womb, we might say, and emerges into the light of new life on the other side. And all throughout this process, we have like all of these people helping us, coaching us, guiding us, leading us in this journey. And I've talked to enough of my friends and heard enough stories of other people who um, have had challenges and difficulties getting to this point. And so like, I don't take this lightly uh, at all. But I, I can remember, like, with both of my children, like, the sense, like, as I'm holding them for the first time, that, like, this is a really sacred, holy moment. Because birth is something that's sacred and holy. And so perhaps it shouldn't be surprising to us that in the story of the Exodus, one of these high point sort of moments within the story of the Old Testament, this story itself is, dare I say, pregnant with all sorts of language of birth, because birth is something that's sacred and holy. But before we get to that, we have some catching up to do. So when we last left off in the narrative lectionary, Celia uh, gave us the story of Joseph, which, by the way, what did she say was a quarter of Genesis? Uh, that's an impossible task. Well done, Celia, because if I had done that, we would still be here talking about Joseph. Um, but she tells us this, the story about Joseph and his highly dysfunctional family and all of the ins and outs of their story and how Joseph finds himself uh, um, uh, in Egypt, this world superpower of the day. And as he's there, like through a series of strange, and, uh, strange events, finds himself in a place of prominence within the land. And then his family comes to him in the midst of crisis and again because of dysfunctions and family systems theory and all of those sorts of things, right? Like he uh, messes with them a bit more and then they finally end up uh, finding a home in Egypt and it becomes this place of refuge for them. Um, and as they're there, like life begins to be good uh, because again, they find themselves in the midst of the world's superpower and life is a little bit more secure when you find yourself living among the world's superpower of the day. And we come to a point in, early on in the book of Exodus where we read that the Israelites, uh, Joseph's family, were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So things were good in Egypt for the Israelites. They did their thing. They began to like multiply. They were fruitful. They began to be like a, a, a big family. What started out as like this uh, peculiar people have now like grown into the land and life was good until the very next verse. Because we read, 
Now a new king arose over Egypt, a new pharaoh, a new leader of this world superpower who did not know Joseph. Meaning he didn't know Joseph, meaning he didn't know Joseph's family, meaning he didn't care about Joseph's family or why they were there. And he said to the people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Not a good thing if you're leading the world superpower. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So Pharaoh, the leader of this world superpower here, is very concerned about this situation, and so he does what the leaders of world superpowers do best. He begins to inflict all sorts of pain and suffering on those that he fears and puts them in enslavement. So what was once this really good life for the people has now turned to about the complete opposite. And what was once a land of opportunity has now become a land of oppression. And we think back to that long list of covenants and promises that God has made with the people of God that Celia referred to a couple weeks ago. And this, this promise that would have been in the back of Joseph's mind as she talked about as he's navigating all of these challenges must have seemed like a far off distant memory for these people at this point. Now, what happens next in the story is a bit strange because we read a, 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 um, a, an episode within this larger story that doesn't really do a whole lot for the overall story. It doesn't like get us oh, anywhere. Like it doesn't like push the story forward in, in too much of a way. And this is the story of the Hebrew midwives. Like it's a story that if you read it, you're like, okay, cool. But like the editor probably could have left that on the chopping room floor. Like, okay. But within the story, we have these Hebrew midwives who are given this task of like delivering Hebrew babies, right? That's what midwives do. And uh, the king of Egypt comes to them and says, like, I want you to kill all of the baby boys that are born. Harsh thing to say, right? But again, a very strategic move by the world superpower of the day. And so by doing this, like, he eliminates any chance of like multiplying, but he also eliminates any sort of future warriors that might raise up uh, and rebel, right? And so what we read in response from these Hebrew women is that they feared God. Now, pay attention to this phrase, feared God, because this is going to be like a common theme throughout the book of Exodus, the sense of like, who do we fear? Who, uh, who do we fear? Not in a sense of like, you mess up and your dad comes at you with a cocked hand, right? But like a, a sense of like, who... Who do, we, who do we have like this utmost respect for, this utmost sort of awe and like the sense of like who runs the show? And so for these Hebrew midwives, it seems as though they didn't think that Pharaoh actually ran the show, but God somehow ran the show. So because they feared God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Now, the, the Pharaoh comes to them and is like, what gives? I gave you one instruction. Like, you couldn't even live up to that. Like, what, what gives? Why, why did you let these boys live? And their response is absolutely hilarious, in the most, like, biblical sense of hilarious. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is hilarious because, like, it might actually be a lie, <laughs> which means that like these women are engaging in like this good old-fashioned civil disobedience for the sake of life and justice for all, right? Fascinating. But also, notice there's a slight towards Egyptian women here, right? Because it's like, oh, the Hebrew women, like, they're really good at giving birth. Like, they give it so fast, but the Egyptians, they go on and on and on, and we can get there in plenty of time. Again, funny in a biblical sense. Um, now, what happens after... Uh, so... Again, this is, this is a bit of a, a strange story. 
again, it doesn't like push the story anywhere. And we ask, like, is this a bit of like an aside in the overall story of the Exodus? Or is it like a little bit of foreshadowing of like what's to come? Well, hang with that. Now, from this point on, uh, God raises up a man by the name of Moses to be a, a leader for the people, a liberator, if you will. Now, Moses, uh, ironically, was a boy who was born during this time and uh, through some strange events, found himself within a place of prominence in Pharaoh's household as well. And one day, Pharaoh is out and he sees uh, a Hebrew slave being attacked by an Egyptian and steps in, kills the Egyptian to save the Hebrew slave's life, but then flees out into the desert for something like 40 years uh, to save his own life as a result. One day, as he's tending to his sheep, uh, he sees off in the distance a, a bush that catches on fire like that, but it's not being consumed. And as one does, he goes over and takes a peek at what's happening here, and then he hears from the Lord, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Again, pay attention to that word. I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, a land that, uh, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to free my people. I'm going to deliver my people from their enslavement to the Egyptians. And I want you to be the one to go to big bad Pharaoh, the most important man in the world, and tell him to let my people go. And Moses is like, "Mm, nope, not going to do that. And they enter into this bartering sort of thing, which is like a bold move to argue with God Almighty, right? Um, but this is what Moses does. And so they go back and forth and Moses like somehow develops superpowers along the way. And it's this strange whole story. I encourage you to read it. But then Moses gets his marching orders from, from God. And we read, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders, which I called superpowers, uh, that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Hang on to that image there. Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. So this is uh, Moses' marching orders. Go to Pharaoh, say, Israel is my firstborn son. I command you to let them go. And then, by the way, if you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. If that last line, by the way, doesn't make you uncomfortable, I have some concerns, okay? <laughs> I get that this is the Bible, but that's, that's a strange line, right? Uh, we're talking, again, God Almighty, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who we refer to as God is love, threatens to kill all the firstborn sons. Like, that should sit a little strange with us. Um, but we have to step back into like uh, an ancient sort of mindset of like what, what's happening in this story. Um, again, this, this story is, is begging us to ask the question of like, who do we fear? Who, who do we have respect for? Who do we have awe for? Who runs the show? Is it Pharaoh? Or is it God? 
And as we read the story of the Exodus, it feels almost like a bit of like political propaganda, not in like a negative or a derogatory sense, but it feels like a a bit of propaganda of like, this is the story of our God. This is how our God shows up in the face of oppression and evil and all of these other things. And so we're going to see all sorts of strange, uncomfortable things to our 21st century mind, but like this wouldn't have been a thing for the ancients. Like this would have just been like part of their origin stories, that this is what our God chooses to do. And so uh, from this point on, we see all of these long lists of crazy plagues that God inflicts upon uh, Egypt. And Moses and, and, and Pharaoh like, eventually like, changes his mind and is like, okay, go. But God hardens, their, go, hardens his heart. And it's like this cat and mouse. And by the end of it, like, you kind of start to feel bad for Pharaoh. Um, but again, it's all about this like, political propaganda about like, who runs the show. Now we're caught up. And uh, the, the uh, Israelites have now uh, escaped from Egypt, and now they are free. Almost. <laughs> now we pick up and we read, As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were Egyptians advancing upon them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because that there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing that we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Moses seems to recognize that the people here are slipping into this fear, this respect, this awe, this sense that like Pharaoh actually runs the show. And he says, do not do that, but stand firm and see, again, this word deliver, deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to keep still. Now, what, uh, what emerges next in this story is some of the like, most beautifully saturated uh, few verses, I think, in like, all of Scripture. So we read next then, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on the right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And spoiler alert, the waters come crashing down and kill all of the Egyptians. Beautiful passage, right? Yeah, all right. Let me explain. Here in the very beginning, we read, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. By the way, this is what uh, some people refer to as the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. Um, that, that's, the, that's the sea that we're talking about here. Now, in the ancient world, to talk about the sea wasn't just to talk about a body of water, but it was to talk about like, the very embodiment of chaos. So imagine like you're on a kayak and like it's dark, it's dark, murky water, the sun's starting to go down and you see ripples of something underneath of you and you're like, ah, I don't like that. That's the sense with the sea, right? The sea is this strange, chaotic sort of thing. Like you can't control it. It does what it wants and like you're just kind of left hanging uh, in the balance. Like the sea in any sort of ancient literature represents chaos. And so Moses stretched out his hand over this chaos. 
And we're told that the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. Now, for um, uh, a keen reader of the, the scriptures, this will hearken back to something earlier in the scriptures, actually to the very opening line of the scriptures in Genesis 1. Because there we read, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. A Hebrew phrase, uh, tohu vavohu, which essentially means chaos. The earth was chaos and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. This word wind uh, is the Hebrew word ruach, which can mean wind or breath or spirit. Meaning that in the very beginning, there was chaos. All of the earth was chaos. And yet God steps in with God's breath, God's wind, God's spirit. God puts this chaos at bay to make room for creation and life itself. Which tells us that in the story of the Exodus, we are being begged to read this, not as just a story of people crossing some sort of sea in some sort of mysterious way, but the author's begging us to read this as an act of recreation. That what is happening as God parts the sea here is God putting chaos at bay by God's very spirit, and that this would be a story of new creation and new life itself. It continues, and it gets even better better. Because next uh, then we read that the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Now, uh, there's various ways of reading this word right and left. So uh, step into a map with me, if you will. Now, the, the, uh, the Israelites are fleeing Egypt. In which direction are they going? East. All right. So one of the ways of translating these words is based on the direction of travel. So we could read that the Israelites uh, went into the sea on the dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on, on their south. So I'm facing east, right? So on their south and on their north. Now, the story seems to be very, very specific about the fact that all of this is happening very, very early in the morning while it's still dark. So imagine what's happening here as they are being delivered from Egypt. They are standing here as the, 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 the sea of chaos, this womb, if you will, is parted. On the, there's a wall on their left, there's a wall on their right, there's a wall on the south, there's a wall on the north. This, this womb of chaos has been parted to create a birth canal as they begin to walk into the light of new life, as they are stepping out of the darkness in the west at, into the rising sun in the east. So they are literally walking out of the darkness of their, their present reality through this birth canal into the light of new life on the other side. And what emerges then on the other side is Israel, God's firstborn son. Come on, right? Like, that is absurdly good. Now, what emerges from the story, again, is Israel's firstborn son, which raises us, or brings us back to this question of, like, the Hebrew midwives. Is this an aside? Or is this somehow like a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in this story? Hopefully by now you're like, yeah, that was some hardcore foreshadowing, right? Because in this story, we see that God is like a savior, right? God saves uh, God's people. We see in this story that God is like a liberator. God liberates God's people. But we see in this story also that God is like a midwife, delivering God's people into new life. See, the people find themselves in like this 
inescapable situation, this moment where they're stuck between the chaos of the sea before them and the chaos of the army behind them, it seems like it is sure imminent death, that there is not even going to be any chance at life ever again. And yet God steps into the situation as a midwife, as a caring midwife, and parts the sea and journeys with God's people, delivering them through this uh, f- through the darkness of the womb into the light of new life on the other side. God in this story shows up like a midwife delivering God's people into new life. Now, this imagery seems to be, get picked up by Jesus uh, in John chapter 3 as well. So in John chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus, uh, who was a religious leader, shows up to Jesus at night, which is a way of saying, like, this is in secrecy. And he says to Jesus, we can tell that you're like, uh, you've come of God, you're a teacher of God. And because it's John, Jesus doesn't give a straightforward answer, but instead says something like this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now notice Jesus talks here about the kingdom of God, which is to talk about like the rule, the reign of God, the realm in which like God gets to call the shots. The space, if you will, where God runs the show. The space where we get to see and experience and know the peace, the justice, the equity, the love of God on full display. We come back to this question of the exodus, of who runs the show? Is it the pharaohs of the world who deal in power and shame and violence and coercion? Or is it God? And it seems here Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God as being this contrast, this alternative reality to the kingdoms of this world and offers this uh, as like the main message of his ministry that we are being invited to step out of these kingdoms of the world and the pain and the suffering and the violence and oppression that come with them and step into the peace and the equity and the justice and the love of God on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus says, if you want to step from this reality, our present reality, into the reality of God, you must be born from above or born again. And again, all of this falls flat on Nicodemus, who's like, okay, I'm an old man. You want me to climb back in my mother's womb and be born again? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not tracking here. So Jesus then says to him, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, if you've ever tried to step from the kingdoms of this world, if you've ever tried to step out of the ways of oppression and violence and pain and suffering and coercion into like, the peace and the justice and the equity and the love of God, you know that there's a little bit of chaos in between, something like a sea of water. <laughs> and to get from this past way of being into the reality of the life that God is inviting us into, it's going to take something like a wind of God or perhaps the very spirit of God to blow these waters to part the way, to create a bit of a birth canal to us, for us to step from the darkness of the present reality into the light of new life on the other side. Again, come on, how good is all of that? It's so beautiful how it's all weaved together. Now, here's what I think all of this means for us. Um, if you've been alive for like more than a minute in our present reality, like you know that our world is one of this violence, this oppression, um, this coercion, this manipulation, that there's this reality of pain and suffering in our life. 
And all of us from time to time come to these moments where we're stuck, where we're pinned between the chaos of the sea before us and the chaos of the army ensuing us and pursuing us from behind. But I think what this story is begging us to ask ourselves is who runs the show? Is it the violence and the chaos that runs the show? Is it our financial insecurity that runs the show? Is it the addictions in our lives that run the show? Is it the doubts and the looming questions that we just can't get answered about the, the, the greatest realities within our life that, that rule the show? Or is there something else that runs the show? And is that thing that runs the show a God who shows up like a midwife, delivering us into new life? As we find ourselves trying to cross over from these old masters of our lives into the new masters, like it is a, it is a, a, a bit of a birth process, right? And it's, it's confusing, it's chaotic, it's messy. And yet the promise of God seems to be in this story, that God is like a good midwife journeying with us from the darkness of the womb into the light of new life on the other side. And the ways in which God journeys with us can sometimes be like a miraculous like parting of the sea, pulling levers from heaven, making things happen that we just can't understand except for them being from the very hands of God. But there's also times when God shows up and journeys with us through somebody like a Moses in our life. If you read the story closely, there's times where it's like, is God doing this or is Moses doing this? It's not very clear, and I think the answer is yes. <laughs> Like God has somehow dwelt in the life of Moses and as, and as Moses is acting, it's also God acting in the life of the Israelites. And there are times in our life as we journey from the darkness of the womb into the light of new life that there are people who show up from time to time. Whether that be a friend, a family member, whether that be a church community that loves us. But there are moments when God, who is like a midwife, steps in through the life of somebody else to journey with us, delivering us into new life. So, my friends... Uh, Whatever you're facing today, tomorrow, next year, whether it feels like the, the weights of the, the pharaohs of the world, the violence, the oppression, the addictions, the financial insecurities, the doubts, the, the looming questions that you have about ultimate reality, ask yourself, who runs the show? Because the invitation of God all throughout the scripture is to turn away from these uh, wannabe rulers and authorities in our life and to lean into the reality that God is something like a midwife and is wanting to deliver us into new life. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for um, the stories of scripture that show the, the various ways that you have shown up uh, to your creation uh, us as human beings uh, over the course of time. Uh, thank you for these stories and what, what they can reveal about who you are and your heart and your disposition and posture towards us. God, we give you thanks that in all of the, the big, beautiful ways that you show up, that one of those is like a midwife um, who wants to show up in our life and usher us, deliver us out of the darkness of the womb into the light of new life on the other side. God, when it feels like the, 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 the armies of chaos are chasing us down and we're stuck between them and the chaos of the sea in front of us, help us to lean into you and to trust that you are something like a midwife who's journeying with us and delivering us into new life. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.